0: Thanks for tuning in. This case takes us back 65 years to Sycamore, Illinois, an hour west of Chicago, a small town where its residents felt safe and didn't lock their doors. That is, until little Maria Riddle was abducted and murdered. Her father, Mike, was a machinist, and her mother, Frances, a homemaker. They had one son, Charles, who was nicknamed Chuck, and three daughters, Kay, Pat, and little Maria. Halfway around the world in Britain, Eileen McCullough was one of the first women to be a searchlight operator in World War II. She married Samuel, and they had a son, John. Samuel was killed during the war, and Eileen went on to marry another soldier, Ralph Tessier. When the war ended, Ralph returned home to Sycamore, and Eileen and John sailed to the U.S. and moved in with him, just two blocks from the Riddle family. The Tessier family grew with six more children, five girls and a boy. Johnny was his mother's favorite. In her eyes, he could do no wrong. But Johnny didn't fit in with the kids. He always was the odd duck. He wore camouflage pants and waved a wooden sword. The kids made fun of him and called him Commando. Johnny was expelled from high school and at 18 had planned to go into the military. At their Riddles in 1957, little Maria was now seven and in grade two. Adorable, with short dark brown hair, with her bangs cut in a straight line high on her forehead, framing her big brown almond-shaped eyes. On Tuesday, December 3rd, Christmas was only weeks away. That evening, the snow was falling lightly, and Maria wanted to go outside and play. Court records reported that after dinner, she ran outside to meet up with her friend, Kathy Sigman, who was eight years old and lived just a few houses away. It was just before 6 p.m., and their tree-lined street was very dark, except for the street light at the corner. There, they played a game of hide-and-seek, but the goal was to duck behind a tree before being lit up by a car's headlights. At 6.05, Maria's mother waited at the girls as she pulled out of the driveway to take Maria's sister Kay to a music lesson. It wasn't long before a tall, slender young man walked down the street and approached the girls. He asked if they were having a good time, and they replied that yes, they were. He asked them their names and shared that his was Johnny. Although it was snowing, Johnny wasn't wearing a coat. Rather, he had on a pair of jeans and a distinctive sweater with bright colors. His face was slender with big teeth, and his short blonde hair was flipped up on one side. He asked them if they'd like a piggyback ride. Kathy said no, but Maria said she would. He propped her up on his back for a short ride to the corner and back. Afterwards, he asked the girls if they had any dolls. Maria ran home and collected one while Kathy waited. When she returned, she showed the doll to Johnny. Kathy's hands were so cold, she ran home to grab some mittens. When she returned minutes later, the corner was empty. Maria was gone, snatched out of the darkness. Just three houses away, her family sat inside A warm, comfortable living room perched in front of the TV. At first, Kathy thought maybe Maria went home and knocked on their side door. Maria's 11 year old brother Chuck was listening to records with a friend and answered it. He thought Maria was still playing their game and suggested Kathy go look for her. So Kathy ran outside, up and down the street calling out Maria's name but still couldn't find her so she went home and told her mother about Johnny the phone calls flew back and forth between Kathy's mother and Maria's at first Maria's father hesitated to call the police because a year earlier she had disappeared while playing outside and just as a search party was organized, she turned up. At 8.10 p.m., Frances couldn't wait any longer and drove to the police station and reported their daughter missing. Police cruised the neighborhood with a loudspeaker announcing Maria was missing. She was 44 inches tall, 63 pounds, wearing a tan jacket, Black corduroy pants, a black and white checkered shirt, white shoes, and brown socks. Residents were asked to keep their porch lights on and report anything suspicious. An oil truck driver making delivery to a house on the corner recalled pulling up around 6pm. He knew Kathy and she had waved to him. He estimated the delivery took him 15 to 20 minutes. Then a bus driver going past the corner at 6:30 p.m. said he never saw anyone. Based on this timeline, police initially thought Maria was abducted between 6:15 and 6:30 p.m. The townspeople gathered and immediately began searching for little Maria her brother Chuck walked with searchers down driveways. Then just around the corner from their home were two sets of footprints in the snow, one large and one small, that led to a garage beside a house. There, a searcher found Maria's doll. Chuck's heart sank. The FBI were brought in and joined the Sycamore Police, Sheriff's Department, and the State Police in questioning potential suspects. Maria's family and neighbors recalled seeing and hearing her outside during a half-hour TV show that had started at 6.30 p.m. The FBI's report concluded that Maria had been abducted between 6.45 and 7 p.m., later than originally thought. Military planes and crop dusters flew over the countryside. Roadblocks were set up. They searched houses, motel rooms, bus stations, railway cars, back lanes, and garbage dumps. 500 searchers looked for Maria. They joined hands and formed a line and walked in frozen cornfields. A pair of corduroy pants and a bloody petticoat were found 12 miles away in Malta, but neither belonged to Maria. One of the houses the FBI knocked on was the Tessiers. They asked Eileen where John was the previous evening, and she told them he had been home. Catherine and her sister Jean were in the room and overheard their mother. Catherine knew she was lying about John. Court records revealed that their father had picked up Catherine from the 4-H club at 8 p.m. and they returned home to see cop cars with flashing lights. She knew her brother nor his car were home that night. In fact, He didn't come home until early the next morning after sneaking in through a window. The Sycamore Tribune reported that a $500 reward was offered. Three days after Maria's abduction, an anonymous caller phoned the police to say a boy in the neighborhood matched the suspect's description. FBI agents John's home a second visit his father ralph told the fbi that when marie disappeared john was 40 miles away in rockford at the air force recruiting office and that he had phoned them collect around 7:10 p.m. seeking a ride home john told police that he'd gone to the recruiting office in chicago earlier that morning then traveled to the recruiting office in Rockford that evening, then called home for a ride. But his father was unable to pick him up, so he hitchhiked back to Sycamore and met up with his girlfriend Janice Edwards at 9.20pm. The FBI asked John to take a lie detector test. He passed and was cleared as a suspect. A day later, John left Sycamore and joined the Air Force. Over the next few months, police showed Maria's friend Kathy thousands of photographs. Not one ever looked like Johnny. It was 2 p.m. on April 26, 1958. Four and a half months later, and 120 miles away, in Galena, When a man searching deep in the woods for mushrooms was trudging through thick underbrush, when on the ground at the top of a hill near a large tree that had fallen over, he stumbled onto something sinister. Frank Sitar described to CNN how he thought he'd found an old deer hide. He could see some bones He looked closer and thought they might be human. He spotted a skull. Then he saw hair and realized it was a little girl with a black and white checkered shirt and brown socks. Maria's parents went to Galena to identify their daughter. When police told her mother about the brown socks, she was certain. Then she saw the black and white shirt and pointed to a patch. A patch that she had sewn. Little Maria was positively identified using dental records. An autopsy was performed, but with a state of decomposition, a cause of death, could not be determined. There were no signs she had been stabbed or shot. Possible explanations for her death could have been strangulation or suffocation. Maria's case went cold so very cold much like the cold wintry day she was murdered. Meanwhile John became a lieutenant in Vietnam and then a captain in the army and was awarded two Bronze Stars. In 1974 he left the military and became a police officer in the small town of Lacey in Washington State. He married twice and in 1979 went to work for the police department in Milton. John's fellow officers didn't like working with him. They felt his actions were unprofessional and reflected poorly on the precinct. He was eventually fired, but appealed and was reinstated. But his career didn't last much longer. He took in a young teenage woman whom he sexually assaulted and was charged with statutory rape. He pled guilty to a lesser charge and was placed on probation and quietly resigned from the police department in 1982. Years later, John legally changed his name to Jack McCullough, a nod to his mother's maiden name. In 1994, 36 years after Maria's murder, John's mother, Eileen, was laying in a hospital bed, dying from cancer. Her daughters, Janet and Mary, were visiting her, and Eileen called Janet over. She grabbed her daughter's wrist and said, Those two little girls and the one that disappeared? John did it. And you have to tell someone. Janet knew exactly what her mother meant. She had never forgotten little Maria. Janet's family members urged her to let it go. But she couldn't and contacted the Sycamore Police several times. But they didn't seem interested. She tried again three years later and found out why. A detective felt he had identified a suspect, a truck driver who was also suspected of murdering an eight-year-old girl in a similar fashion. When the truck driver died, Maria's case was closed. When Janet's father died, she decided to try one last time. CNN reported that 2008 She sent an email to the Illinois State Police, stating in part, I still believe that John Tessier from Sycamore, Illinois, also known as Jack McCullough, was and is responsible for her death. He is living in Seattle. She went on to say, This is the last time I mention this to anyone. I'm not going to keep doing this, Over and over. It's exhausting, and it dredges up painful, horrible memories. Detective Tony Rapash received her email and called Janet. Investigators were assigned to the case and tracked down another one of John's half-sisters. She recalled how she had been sexually molested by him and that he had molested other young girls in the neighborhood and that it was a well-kept family secret. Civilian investigator Larry Cott and Special Agent Brian Hanley tracked down John's former girlfriend, Janice Edwards, and she claimed that she didn't see John that night as he had told police. She recalled that when her parents heard Maria had been abducted, they wouldn't let her leave the house. Investigators asked if she might have a photo of John. Because he'd been expelled, he wasn't in the school yearbook. Jan searched her old photos and found one from June 1957. On the back, it was signed, Love Johnny. She mailed it to investigators. When they received the photo, they went to remove it from its frame when a small yellow piece of paper fell out, an unused train ticket from Rockford to Chicago. They used John's photo, along with five others from the yearbook, to form a lineup and asked Maria's childhood friend, Kathy, to see if she could pick out the man who'd given Maria a piggyback ride four decades earlier. She narrowed it down to two photos, then picked out John. A search warrant was issued for a house in Seattle belonging to the man who now called himself Jack McCullough, a home he shared with his wife. Seattle Detective Irene Lau interviewed Jack at the police station. She noticed that his mood swung between rage and calmness. When asked about Maria, his face changed. His body relaxed, as he said. She was very stunningly beautiful, with big brown eyes, and that she was lovely. Then adamantly denied being involved with her murder. On July 1, 2011, an arrest warrant was issued for Jack. He was extradited from Washington State to Illinois. After 53 years, Jack returned home in shackles. That very same day, Maria's body was exhumed and a second autopsy performed. There was no DNA found and the cause of death could still not be determined. However, the forensic anthropologist found three cuts in the upper chest area that could have been inflicted with a large blade, such as a knife. Jack was charged with three counts, murder, kidnapping, and abduction of an infant. This would be the nation's oldest cold case murder to ever go to trial. Court records reveal that at Jack's trial in September 2012, his sister Catherine testified that her brother was not home the night Maria disappeared, and neither was his car, and that he was familiar with the area of Galena where Maria's body was found, as her family took trips there every summer, and that he owned a multicolored sweater that their mother had knitted for him, and after that night, she never saw it again. His other sister, Jean, testified that her father went out to search for Maria that night, while her mother went to the armory to help with food for the searchers. She slept in the living room that night, waiting for her parents to return, and recalled that Jack was not home. Jack's sister, Janet, testified about their mother's confession in the hospital, and that although she was on medication, she was lucid and coherent. The local telephone company records reflected a collect call from Rockford to the Chessiers' home in Sycamore that evening at 6.57pm. The call lasted two minutes. The prosecution ignored the FBI's original timeline and gave the impression that Maria had been abducted closer to 6 p.m., giving Jack enough time to drive the 45 minutes to Rockford and place a collect call. Three inmates testified that Jack had confessed details of the crime to them. All swore that they had not been promised anything in exchange for their testimony. There was no DNA evidence and no physical evidence. But the totality of the witness's testimony led the court to find Jack guilty on all charges. Fifty-five years after Maria's abduction, he was sentenced to life for her murder, five years for kidnapping, and seven years for abduction of an infant. Jack was 73 years old. He appealed his sentence. The appellate court upheld his murder conviction and vacated the charges of kidnapping and abduction of an infant. Jack would still serve a life sentence. Now this is where you think it might end, but nope. Jack filed another appeal, saying the police and prosecutors had buried evidence that supported his timeline of the events and that he had been 40 miles away in Rockford when Maria was abducted. State's attorney Richard Schmuck launched a six-month investigation and reviewed 4,500 pages of documents, including the FBI's original timeline of the events that determined Maria was abducted between 6.45 and 7.00 p.m. Richard subpoenaed records from the phone company that confirmed the collect call from Rockford to the Tessiers' home had been placed at 6.57. And the two officers at the recruiting office in Rockford confirmed that Jack was there between 7.15 and 7.30. Jack girlfriend at the time, Janice Edwards, changed her story. From saying that she hadn't seen him that night to now recalling Jack stopped by her home around 9.30 p.m. to tell her that he'd passed his Air Force physical. In April 2016, a judge overturned his conviction. Jack, at 76 years old, was a free man after spending nearly five years in prison. After the trial, two of the inmates filed lawsuits saying they hadn't received the favors they had been promised for testifying. Jack sued officers of the Seattle and Illinois Police Departments and was awarded $445,000. Today, a plaque in memory of Maria resides at the Sycamore Police Department. Maria's family still believe that Jack is Maria's killer. Thanks for listening to Murder 20 Podcast with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Celeste Carrington. At a young age, she fled Philadelphia and traveled west to California. But even with the promise of a new start, she couldn't outrun her past. Faced with the loss of her job, She made decisions that ended four lives, including her own. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in Twenty are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in Twenty every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in Twenty at Patreon. PayPal, or Merlin20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music, sound effects and Vaseline studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers.